0: Hello, I'm Jennifer Hansen and you're listening to Take a Breath, a series where we ask some of the amazing people who work within our 302 community to sit with us, take a breath and tell us their stories. We'll hear all about the passions, heartaches, hopes and fears of our friends who dedicate their lives to bringing breath to others. This year, Take a Breath with 302 has initiated a three-year gender equity strategy with the aim to improve health outcomes for women and girls in low-resource settings and make advances towards the UN goal of achieving gender equality and empowering all women and girls. In this season, we'll be speaking with three incredible women from across Africa, who are working in healthcare and advocacy spaces to enhance the lives of girls and women and make advances towards achieving gender equality? In today's episode, I'll be chatting with Rebecca Kyungmi, a lawyer and activist for the rights of girls and women. Rebecca has already achieved a remarkable victory when it comes to the rights of girls. She pursued and won a landmark case on child marriages. Petitioning the High Court of Tanzania to challenge provisions to the Tanzania Marriage Act from 1971, which allowed girls as young as 14 to get married. The decision raised the minimum age of marriage to 18 for both boys and girls. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. You have been instrumental in bringing about a vitally important change to the law regarding child marriages. Are you seeing the effects of the change reap benefits already?
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It's such a pleasure to join you in this podcast. And yes, I mean, to just go straight to your your question, uh, it it was such an incredible milestone in 2016 when the High Court declared these two sections unconstitutional. You know for depriving and uh, uh, going against the rights of children in our communities, and uh, already we are uh, we are we are recording uh, incremental impact as a result of that landmark ruling uh, there is a momentum that is growing around ending child marriages in the country uh, because what the strategic litigation did was really to inspire the public public interest you know when it came to Understanding uh, uh, the impact of child marriages, but also why it was important for Tanzania to level the minimum age of marriage. So we are, we are seeing uh, the incremental changes, although I would say clearly from the beginning, uh, the work is still uh, there. Like we still have a long way to go because, you know, child marriages is rooted in our culture, our customs and the way our communities have been socialized for a long time. So it's indeed a long, it will take a long time to finish.
0: But it must still be very rewarding to see that change taking effect.
1: Ah, for sure. You know, as a campaigner, as, you know, a person uh, who was uh, in the front line really uh, pushing for uh, 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 the court to declare these sections unconstitutional, it was very, um, it 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 was fulfilling to see that, you know, one arm of our government uh, was so bold in standing up for the rights of the of uh, of the of the girls and, ch- and children uh, generally in the country. So I felt very happy. I was very, very excited, to be honest. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay, how did you feel the moment you heard when that decision was handed down?
1: I don't know, I think for like few seconds or minutes, I was a, a little bit like numb, like I was just like, you know, you I don't have words, but I know inside I was really excited. You know, I was very happy. I I don't know, it felt like I was living in a in a in a in a in a historical moment, you know, and that reality, you know, because this is something I mean, these sections in particular, uh it has been in conversation since 1980s, you
0: know. Yes, and even so, though you yourself were never married young, you had friends who were, how how did child marriage affect you in childhood?
1: Yeah, so uh, for me, child marriage is also very close to, you know, uh, to to my life. Uh, Growing up in, in, in Tanzanian community, although I did not have like close relative getting married at a young age, but we had few of our friends from primary school who, because, you know, they're out of school or they got pregnant when they were young, because there's also interlinkages between child marriages and teen pregnancies, you know, so they got married at a very young age. Uh, but I was, as I was growing up and, you know, grounding myself in theories and in practice in the community, I also came to, you know have uh, to be in contact with some of the survivors who were in the communities with uh, highest prevalence rate uh, so the realities of child marriages was not just something that I was reading in reports or research these were lived realities of people that I knew you know of their lives of how uh, their lives were impacted and how you know it changed their trajectory completely so it was very close to my heart I mean and my life and experiences as well
0: and what was the general feeling from those women, friends of yours, when they reached adulthood, looking back, you know, did they accept what happened to them? Were they angry?
1: Okay, so there's a mixed, there's a mixed feeling here, Jennifer, because uh, we should first understand, maybe this is uh, what, what uh, I was even supposed to say at the beginning, child marriages is deeply engraved into the customs, the traditions and how girls are socialised in our communities. That, you know, no matter how much you do, no matter how much you achieve, your achievement is actually attached to your reproductive roles. You know, how many children, you, you know, you have, you have bad, you know, uh, are you married or not? So this is also the reality of these girls, you know, in many of the communities that uh, their, te- their worth is tend to be attached to how many cows, for instance, uh, our family uh, was able to get as a dowry because you are, you are married. So once they have gone through that, that we have few uh, who because of maybe their, their, their own understanding or because they had uh, some sort of uh, uh, engagement to harness their urges, they're able to realize that what I actually went through was bad, you know? Hmm. Or what I'm going through right now, although in the social expectation is like, you know, this is what is supposed to happen to you. But it's not OK. So we have a few of those, but we also have a majority who think this is normal, like it's a norm and, you know, there's nothing wrong about being married young. So,
0: so your parents didn't think it was a yeah. good idea for you to be married young?
1: No, for, for me, fortunately, our parents did not even consider our gender when it came to education. It was like, you all have to go to school and get an education. My mom used to tease us, actually, (laughs) if I can bring that joke. Uh, So because of, you know, um, the issue of scarcity of water, we used to have a lot of gallons in the kitchen. And she would joke with us saying, if you do not go to school and study, I don't know what you're going to inherit. Maybe these gallons of water. (laughs) (laughs) You were were (laughs) lucky
0: your parents were more forward thinking then. I suppose that's the yes. word, isn't it? Maybe it's because it's, as you said, it was a cultural difference. But they, for your, you were lucky. They thought differently.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, we were so lucky. I, I definitely say we were very privileged to grow in such a family. And great that you are now seeing
0: the benefits of this change to the legislation. And you're also very passionate about the sexual and reproductive health rights of young girls and women. What would you like to see change in that area, say, in the next five years?
1: I think uh, if I'm I'm to contextualise it, especially in our community, uh, is to have honest conversations about issues of bodily autonomy. Because I feel it's an area that if we unpack it, everything else falls in or into that. You know, I would wish to see, you know, more young women, more adolescent girls are able to reclaim you know, their rights of saying my body is my own, you know, because I know many do not have that luxury at the moment. But I also like to see a lot of, you know, uh, friendly services are actually provided, you know, to young women, to women in our communities in a, an affordable uh, price. What
0: what are the barriers that face young women, young girls in Tanzania when it comes to healthcare?
1: Uh, so, there 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 there, I can actually categorize them in like you know two or three places. You know, uh, we have issues around supply. You know that. Uh, Uh, Young women, despite the fact that they are aware of their rights and their bodies and they want to have correct information, we do not have a lot of, you know, information or products available, you know. And then, of course, there is also issue of uh, um, understanding, where I think it falls within the category I would call demand, like the young women themselves and adolescent girls, not all of them are aware, you know, of their body rights, you know, of their reproductive rights and also you know, having agents to stand up and speak out whenever their rights are being uh, uh, obstructed. And then the last one, I would say, is around the legal framework. Uh, we still have policies and laws that do not allow, for instance, the provision of comprehensive sexuality education in schools, or you know, uh, laws and policies that allows for environment in the community, for people to speak openly about these issues without uh, uh, facing repercussions. So I would say barriers are really at those three levels, the supply, demand, and also the legal framework.
0: Is it difficult for many of them to even say, talk about menstrual hygiene or to gain access to products and facilities?
1: Um, It's it's not easy. Uh, we, 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 We were actually looking at the statistics, for instance, of menstrual hygiene at the moment. We have uh, young women and girls missing four to five days each month uh, because of menstrual hygiene related issues. Meaning products, yeah, at school. Meaning products or, you know, the school not having uh, facilities uh, for them to maintain their menstrual hygiene with dignity. And then uh, one girl out of ten will drop out completely because of menstrual hygiene related issues. So still there's a challenge to talk about this issue because uh, a lot in our community even even in school setting look at menstrual hygiene issue as a taboo you know sure uh, that it's not something that we can openly talk about
0: is this why in 2015 you led a girl power election campaign for the Tanzania general election can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: <laughs> that was exciting <laughs> what were the challenges and the outcomes with that? Yeah, so I, um, I I led a girl power campaign through uh, uh, an organization called Femina, Femina uh, which is a, a national strategic communication organization that works with young people. So I led a team of uh, five young women. I was the fifth, so four young women plus myself. And uh, our, our work was just uh, around mobilizing for girls' agenda in the country to be included uh, in the party's manifesto and generally in the, in the political party that that was going to win the election. So the, but one of the outcomes that we are very proud of to date is we were able to come out with a girl's agenda, you know, as a specific manifesto that speaks about girl's agenda in the country that we used it you know, to really uh, uh, go to these political parties and say, you need to have this if you need to win the elections, you know. And uh, I'm happy, the incumbent president that we have today, uh, at that time she was the vice president, uh, the candidate. She vied that, you know, I'm going to take this agenda uh, with me. And we are seeing now with the change of context, really her grounding has also been around how am I going to increase more around, you know, the women's uh, and girls' Uh, Issues generally in the country. Yeah.
0: Well, what you have achieved already is really inspirational. So, congratulations. And you recently won the UN's Human Rights Prize, following in the footsteps of people, activists, including Malala Yousafzai and Nelson Mandela. So, what does that feel like, and what does that mean to you?
1: Uh, it means responsibility. <laughs> yes,
0: true. <laughs> More pressure, or is it yeah. is it rewarding to be recognised internationally on that level?
1: I think I don't know. Maybe my mind process is a little bit uh, uh, crazy. I, of mm-hmm. the, the experience of stumbling, to be honest, to be put among you know some of the people that I've been looking up to for a long time, you know. But I think for me, it was also about really saying, okay, people are really watching. And uh, with all this recognition, there is a responsibility that should always be at the back of my mind that whatever I'm standing up for, you know, I should be consistent, consistent around it. But also this recognition, what will it mean broadly to the lives of young women in Tanzania in Africa and globally. So how am I also using my power, my exposure, my recognition to organize and mobilize more young women leaders so collectively we can continue to champion for these rights? I think that's how, you know, that's how I felt. And I've been really trying, I'm not there yet, but I'm really trying to see how we can organize better collectively and, you know, use our collective power.
0: Well, it does really make you a, a role model for young women, which is fantastic. Who were some of your own female role models over the years?
1: My mother. <laughs> ah, yes, of course. I, I think, I think from, from, from that very nuclear family, she sent a very strong message uh, to my life that you know despite the fact that she was a standard seven liver you know she stood for us and she has been consistent in ensuring that we are really getting an opportunity you know to education and you know to thrive uh, in in our lives and then i'll also say the second is bibi titi, titi muhammad she has been um one of our i normally like to call her our founding mother mm-hmm. uh, she has been forefront of liberation struggle of Tanzania, you know, uh, post-colonial uh, and, and pre-colonial, and she, she was a woman who was fearless, she stood her ground, she was firm, you know, in her decision, in her resolve, and I think it's, it's a woman that I, I, I aspire to be, you know, yeah. And this, the, the last one, I would say it's um, uh, Mama Mary Rusimbi. Uh, she is a, 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 uh, a, a, a women's rights uh, activist and feminist in Tanzania. Uh, but what I like about her is how she's always grounded on the bigger picture of us against me. You know, like if we, are, if we are to win, we need to go together. We need to pull others on the ground. Yeah, so those are the three women that really inspires me.
0: Well, talking of your mother, who obviously believed in the power of education, you've carried through that value, I suppose, in founding the Musichana initiative in twenty sixteen to empower girls through education. What made you decide on that name?
1: (laughs) Okay, so Musichana is a Swahili word for a girl.
0: (laughs) Oh, silly me! See, I didn't know. I needed to be educated.
1: (laughs) Okay, okay, Um, you know. Yeah. That's an opportunity for me to share a Swahili word to your audience. <laughs> so, Msichana is a Swahili word for a girl. And we thought it would just be right to call it a girl's initiative.
0: Yeah. yeah, of course. On the Mistiana Initiative website, it shows you've donated 95 bikes to school girls. That's part of your one girl, one bike strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about how access to transportation can really impact the lives of young Tanzanian girls?
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Actually, I think we need, we need to do a little bit of updating ourselves there. So to date we have donated 250 bicycles and we just did the last uh, donation last month. Um, That's a fantastic effort. Yeah, thank you. But we thank our partners as well for, you know, believing in us. Yeah. So um, why bicycle? Uh, so one of the finding that we ground this donation uh, um, on is the finding that uh, uh, CoImpact Collab did around, you know, how can we how to enhance access to education for girls in particular. And one of the findings was you need to ensure that schools are accessible. And with access, it means schools are near the community or the, the where the girls are living, or you should have tools that ensure they can get to school. So for us, bicycle was really uh, an incentive that we wanted to put, because we know a lot of our schools, especially secondary schools, are way far from where girls are living, like from 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers, and girls have to walk from their homes to school. And as a result, they've also been prone to incidences of sexual and gender-based violence, you know, like rape. Or sometimes because the school is very far, they get tired, they get demotivated, and some families have been using that as an excuse to marry off some of the girls. Yeah, so we use bicycle as a tool, as as an incentive to get girls to school and get them motivated. But sometimes at the end, although we know that is probably a bigger outcome and we might not contribute to that ourselves, like alone, is increased performance.
0: Yes. Oh, I think it's a wonderful initiative, it sounds fabulous. Um, so many challenges, though, that you face with your battles for equality, and as well in the last two years, we've had COVID to complicate matters. What sort of complications have arisen from the pandemic in Tanzania? Um,
1: it's a big I question, going- I know. <laughs> So, there is, there is uh, what COVID did, and then challenges, I think, bottlenecks around yeah. the work that we do, if mistaken. Yeah. So, I, I think COVID is one of the challenges, of course. Uh, but I think what COVID has done, maybe not just to Tanzania alone, to many countries, and especially African countries, is to expose the violence that women and girls have been facing for a long time. So for Tanzania, uh, for instance, we did a special fact finding in Loliondo, uh, where during the time that Tanzania had a short uh, uh, lockdown and schools were closed, many girls were actually forced to get married. And many girls, actually the, the number of girls who are getting pregnant because they're at home and you know, there is all of that, actually spiked. And we also even look at you know, the duty of care that was actually imposed into the girls and women just because they are home, to take care of everyone, to take care of the sick ones, you know? So those were some of the impacts that we saw because of COVID. Uh, But in terms of broader challenges, I think issues and agendas around women's and girls' rights, women's health, women's bodies, Have a lot of backlash, you know, not just in Tanzania, but, you know, generally in many countries. But coming from countries like, uh, you know, African countries where already women and girls have been socialized to be of, from this stereotypical thinking, the backlash sometimes is brutal. And it does not just go to the initiatives, it's even personal. And now uh, we even see uh, uh, backlashes uh, happening in the social media, you know, using our personal accounts, using our organization accounts. So that's a challenge. The second challenge I would say is issues around uh, uh, funding, like financial support. Because of COVID, um, a lot of countries, because, you know, most of our initiatives also depend on uh, general support of donors. In many countries, because of uh, COVID, they have pulled back the support to support their people, which is very right and okay. So as a result, uh, many of the women's and girls' rights initiatives, which were already underfunded, are are experiencing a bit of hard time, you know, around uh, sustaining.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The figures around poverty are pretty confronting. It says uh, on my notes that in Tanzania, 60% of the female population is living in extreme poverty and 80% of the smallholder farmer's labour force are women. So that obviously creates enormous problems. Do you have any idea for possible solutions for women living in poverty in Tanzania?
1: Oh, wow. I I mean... (laughs) The, the solutions can be plenty. But I think for me, is really to, for instance, uh, to look at, you know, the majority of women who are smallholder farmers and ensure that we are able to work around increasing the value of, you know, the work that they do, you know. It's, it's so the that- empowerment
0: in agroecology and permaculture, which aims to address the crisis, doesn't it?
1: So looking at, you know, how to sustainably uh, uh, increase their produce. So what they're actually cultivating is not, that's, is not just subsistence, you know, but they're able to sell as well. But also in, 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 in incorporate into that issues of empowerment. Because what we see now, it's not that women are not working in farms. They are working in farms. But whatever that they're getting from selling the produce, it's the men who are deciding how that money should be used. And I think the, the empowerment should be that as well, should be there as well, the conscientization so that women understand they can also take their power back in deciding so that how That's another
0: big cultural change, doesn't it? Trying to address that.
1: Yes. Yes. So looking at that as well. Uh, But I also wanted to say 60 percent, I mean, 70 percent of women are in formal economy in Tanzania, you know. And we know the macroeconomics are the one which have a lot of, you know, uh, uh, money and support the micro shift of of economies in the country where poverty will automatically be uh, uh, dealt with. So I'm also looking long-term how we're investing in you know, uh, STEM subjects for, for, for female you know, students. Yeah. Because if they're able to invest their knowledge in the STEM subjects, these are the subjects that when you graduate, your possibility to contribute in the macroeconomics is huge. You know? And the last one, I think for me, is really to look at the issues of retention for girls in school. Because if more girls, you know, yes, we have a lot of girls coming in, I mean, starting uh, school, like, you know, um, enrollment. But if they are dropped out of school, it means uh, we are losing the bet on uh, uh, gaining economically. So retention of of girls for me is crucial. That means addressing issues of uh, uh, re-entry for pregnant school girls, addressing issues of female genital mutilation, addressing issues of child marriages, addressing issues of menstrual hygiene so girls can be in school and study.
0: So many challenges. It's quite um, daunting hearing you list them all. Uh, And I know medically there's also um, challenges and the Free 2 Foundation does work in increasing access to medical oxygen and the under-resourced periphery of health services. With pneumonia remaining the single largest killer of children worldwide, what do you think access to oxygen would mean for young mothers and their children?
1: It it will actually be uh, liberating because um, you are looking at the issue of, you know, access to product that sometimes sits at, you know, the gate of either I'm alive or I'm dead, you know. And I think uh, the fact that uh, we are able to ensure that, you know, more women are able to access, you know, the oxygen products. As a result, we are ensuring that, you know, the the power that goes back to contributing in these other uh, spaces is assured, you know, like the ripple effect. Because when we are able to support them, it's not not just them that benefits, you know. At the end of the day is how also when they are fit and well, that can also have a ripple effect to the community because we have a healthy Uh, community. We have healthy families, you know. So I'm looking at, you know, the bigger, the multiplier effect of all of that, you know, in ensuring that we are able to sustain our communities, to increase productivity, but to have healthy communities, you know, that are able to uh, uh, create resilient communities at the end of the day.
0: And I saw the video about the free O2 system and how it works even when there are power blackouts, which is quite revolutionary, I think, and will really... uh, change outcomes in hospitals in terms of saving lives, which will be fantastic. So that's a bonus, isn't it?
1: Exactly, for sure. Especially yeah. with, uh, you know, some of the villages at the moment uh, not having electricity at all. I know we are trying to go, you know, with the electricity, but still we have a lot of our communities uh, which, are, which do not have power at all. Yeah.
0: yeah. Getting back to equality, as a young woman working in government spaces, have you faced any particular discrimination or hardships along the way?
1: Well, I was just saying, I will be very different if I would say I've not faced my fair share of failures and challenges.
0: <laughs> sure, but in, in, in particular, there. say sexism.
1: Yes, I mean, they're there, uh, definitely. And uh, I remember um, uh, one anecdote, We were going to the court and uh, I had this uh, uh, few senior men and women looking at me and saying, this young woman, who is going to marry her? She's challenging the government, you know, and that, you know, stick in my head saying, this is exactly how the community look at me whenever I'm trying to uh, stand up and say, you know, I do not want to see this in my community. They see me in the lens of, you know, how women are supposed to be, how girls are supposed to behave in the community. So that was a challenge because, um, and it was not just them. It was also about, you know, the people around the social media constantly coming back and, you know, uh, uh, trying to define you based on the limitations and lenses of how a woman or a young woman should be. In our community. How do you deal with those challenges? Uh, So I learnt actually, I learnt to develop a very strong support system, you know, people who are around me who always uh, nourish the energy that I have, you know, and not drain me because it's already, it was already very obvious that whenever I go out in public the energy is very draining so I, I I deliberately nurtured a support system that was, was nourishing my energy, was sometimes if I feel beaten I, and I, I feel like I do not want to wake up, they always say, you know, your purpose is bigger, you know, like, come on. So friends, you know, at that time it was uh, my boyfriend who is now my husband. You know, my parents were very crucial people to really um rejuvenate me whenever I felt like, you know, uh, there was a lot of support. Yes. Yes. Which
0: is great. You need
1: that. Definitely. So that's
0: what we all need to do. If we want to try and enforce changes in our own communities, we find people around us who will support us. That's probably, I think the takeaway there that you're
1: saying. i would say one, but also another thing, if I'm to add, I think also develop your, your, your personal strength and resilience you know like be convinced in the cause that you're standing for yourself first because everybody else can support you but you know the support comes after you already know what is it that you're standing for so be convinced in it understand it believe in it you know of course you have to sometimes learn and unlearn but be convinced in the cause that you're standing for i love that that
0: sounds Like, very good advice. So, ultimately, are you optimistic that with all the work you're doing, that social progress can be made relatively quickly?
1: I I would say yes, but uh, I feel like I need more of me. You know, like, (laughs) we we need... Yes. Exactly. uh, I think alone, definitely, Um, alone... And when I say alone, like, you know, with the energy that I have and maybe the things that we we do in our space, maybe we can go quicker. But I know if we not, we need to go further. We need to go together. Uh, So I think it's it's still very crucial if we are to achieve the gender equity, the gender equality, you know, the agenda 2030, the agenda 2063 for Africa we want. We need to be many. We need to go together. We need that collective power, and that needs all of us to continue building the movement to harness the power, the voice of young women and men in our communities because this is for all of us. Well, it seems that
0: the changes you have already brought about will pave the way for better outcomes for women when it comes
1: to equality, don't you think? Yeah, of course. I, 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 I believe so too, yeah. I mean, these are incremental changes, and we are celebrating as we go, but yeah. we know... Uh, there will be more to be done if we are to achieve, you know, the gender equality.
0: But such important changes that you have made already. So congratulations. And it is great to know that the future is looking brighter for the w- women in your country. So that is just Fantastic, especially with the wonderful changing legislation to child marriage. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today and for being part of the Free02 podcast. Good luck with your future projects and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast. In this current context of COVID 19, accessible oxygen supply is critical. A hypoxic child cannot survive seven minutes without constant oxygen supply. That's how quickly a baby's life is lost. And that's why Free 2 have made it their mission to keep the oxygen flowing, even when the power cuts out. Please like, share and subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow us on our website, www.freeo2.org, or on Facebook at FreeO2, Instagram and Twitter at FreeO2AU and LinkedIn at FreeO2 Foundation Australia. Thanks for listening.